Welcome to Men in This Town, the podcast. I'm Giuseppe Santamaria, and for over a decade, I've been photographing men's street style in various towns around the world, looking for those whose dress sense speak volumes about who they are. In this podcast, I take a closer look at those men by bringing them into the studio for a portrait and having a chat about their particular approach to the many facets of life. In this episode, I welcome Richard Kavanaugh to the studio, a multi-award-winning hairstylist turned tech entrepreneur who epitomizes the definition of rebel in every sense of the word. Having grown up with a conservative upbringing in New Zealand during the 80s, Richard rejected the academic vision his family had for him, and in doing so, threw himself into a world of self-exploration through fashion, drugs, and rock and roll. Although his creative spirit shined through, it was his lack of discipline that made him feel lost. That is until he found the art of karate to bring him back in line and prepare him for a creative career most people would die for. Head over to meninthistown.com to view selects from our portrait session. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the conversation that took place. So we'll start off um, a little chat interview with introducing yourself, what your name, age, and what you do for a living. So I'm Richard Kavanagh. I am 50 years of age. 50 this years year. old, really? <laughs> I am. I'm 50 years old, man. And I don't <laughs> feel any different to when I was 27. It's so weird. Um, you, are, you present this energy that is very youthful, I think. So. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, and uh, so, look, for my entire career, I've been a hairdresser. And I was just thinking about this uh, this morning. A few years ago, my life took a complete left turn from a career point of view. And although I am still involved in fashion and beauty, and primarily I'm a hairdresser because that's how I identify mm. um, working in fashion, I actually run a tech company full time. Mm. <laughs> Which, Which is a leap, isn't it? <laughs> it's so weird because I didn't, it, like it was like, it is a leap and it's a complete left turn, but it sort of happened so like gradually and right. easily that I now find myself, oh, I'm the CEO of a multi-million dollar global tech startup. Mm. What? I'm a hairdresser. <laughs> but it, it, it all comes to creativity, doesn't it? I mean, there's such creative outlets. It, it, it makes me question kind of what was life like for you in the beginning? What was, how did you express your creativity when you were a kid? When I was a kid, um, interestingly enough, I was very academic at school. And mm. so I didn't, uh, even though I wanted to do art, so all I wanted to do at school was sport and art, but all the teachers said, no, you're an academic student, so you have to do languages and sciences. Mm -hmm. And so I was really pushed into this box, which I think probably influenced the way that I responded to my schooling, which was to completely rebel mm. and go completely against the grain and yeah. embrace subculture in a massive way. You know, like um, in the 80s as a high school kid, I went like completely down the route of exploring multiple subcultures, so punk and goth and surf yeah. and, you know, really just like dug deep into, you know, colouring my hair and, and creating different aesthetics and trying on all these different characters, I guess, as a way of responding to... Um, my my upbringing of being squeezed into a box and being told, okay, no, you're an academic student, you're going to go to university, you're going to get a degree, you're going to work in corporate business. Mm. Was that coming from family as well or 
both yeah, both sides. Yeah, both yeah. family and uh, and and from school. So where where did you grow up? I grew up in New Zealand, New Zealand actually. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we moved around a lot. Um, I think you know my mum. My mum was sort of trying to find her way in the world, and so we went through a period of time where. Actually, I went to 13 different schools before I started oh God, high school. Really? <laughs> wow. And then we settled in Auckland. I went to high school in Auckland, did my hairdressing apprenticeship there. And, of course, like leaving school at the age of 15 to go and become a hairdresser when mm. everybody had these expectations of me um, academically uh, was really frowned upon. Oh, I can imagine, yeah. You know, to, to, work, to go and work in fashion, which, which they didn't think of it as working in fashion. Right to go and be a hairdresser to the people in my world felt to them as though I was basically just doing a job that you only did if you were too dumb to mm. do anything proper, right. for lack of a better way of putting it. And so I really struggled with a, a number of challenges in doing that. One, the family pressure, societal pressure saying to me, you know, why are you doing this? This is not a good choice for you. And I knew in my heart, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I wanted to do hair. Why, why, where did that come from, do you think? So I was really interested in, um, in art mm. and architecture and chemistry and biology. So okay. I, I actually thought I was going to be a biochemist. Right, right. Um, but as I mentioned, I was kind of digging into all these subcultures and I, I was playing with this idea of punk, new wave, sort of post-punk, new wave looks. And I was getting my hair cut and coloured. And I got this like wedge cut flat top with a long fringe <laughs> and it was bright orange underneath the kind of wedge cut line um the what year was this this was uh i want to say this was 83 okay yeah. right and this was new zealand right pre-internet yeah, so yeah. nobody oh, knew yeah. what was kicking in london mm. right? i didn't even know that this was a thing i hadn't seen this hair i just wanted it orange yeah like um <laughs> orange orange and un- like orange below the temples and below the occipital with a kind of a, a V-shaped wedge and then a flat top on top with pink and purple tips and then Amazing. a long fringe hanging over one eye, like down to my kind of <laughs> cheekbone over one eye with a green tip. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so I went home and my mother was like, what the <laughs> f- is that? <laughs> and I went to school and they were like, go home change your hair <laughs> oh my god um but i went to a restaurant actually and there was a girl who had like literally the same haircut mm. and she was like where did you get your haircut i just got back from london and like i went to such and such a salon and this was like the coolest newest thing yeah and right like, eh, i didn't know <laughs> <laughs> how funny is that it's something that's kind of just built into you of kind of observing pop culture isn't it and kind of just seeing what mm. you could kind of bring to a small town in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that was sort of the start of my kind of emergent creativity was like just allowing whatever was inside me to bubble up and be yeah, expressed yeah. and primarily with myself as a canvas. I love you that. Know. So I did loads of uh, piercings. I did – obviously I've got a full-body Japanese yeah. tattoo, but I started getting tattoos in the 80s when uh, my boss found out that I got my first tattoo. She nearly fired me from my apprenticeship. From your hair apprenticeship? Yeah. Yeah, right. Why? What is that? Well, tattoos were not a thing, yeah. man. Like it was only 
criminals and gangsters that got tattoos. And now it seems like crazy. Yeah, right? it does, yeah. doesn't it? And it, it's weird how time could do that, isn't it? It's crazy. Because it's almost a prerequisite to being a hairdresser now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you would think, especially a creative field that it is. It's yeah. like you would think that it would be just accepted. You would think so, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, there's very, very rigid boxes about how you – because we worked in – service Mm. right having to be able to present yourself to the customer in a way that made them feel comfortable was important right was more important than expressing yourself um and so yeah i nearly got fired when i got my first tattoo when she found out and i'd had it for six months and it was up on my shoulder and nobody could see it yeah and so you know i would express my creativity through myself as a canvas i'd change my hair all the time i'd change my clothes all the time i would wear skirts uh, I experimented with wearing makeup and, you know, just doing all these things. And people would say, oh, uh, you know, and because I'm a straight man mm. and I grew up uh, a, a very small kind of, actually as a teenager I was a little bit pretty, very small, yeah, skinny. Yeah. I was, what was I? I was like 40 kilos when I left high yeah, school right. to go and do my apprenticeship. <laughs> so I was a little skinny, Tiny. kind of pretty, purple paisley shirt, skinny stovepipes, pointy shoes, blow-dried hair, colour. And, you know, I used to cop a lot of shit in the street. And I mean, and say that with, as a straight man, what gave you that confidence? Because that's the thing. It's at the time, even probably now, I would argue, people are always associated with being gay if they are into fashion, if they are into something. Where did you get that from in the 80s? Where did you get the confidence? Well, I guess that like any degree, like you say, any degree of flamboyance, mm. right, in the way that you express yourself tends to be associated with being gay. Mm. Being a hairdresser, <laughs> yeah, yeah. especially in the 80s, man. I left school. My, my grandmother was like, oh, I didn't know you were gay. Mm. I'm like, I'm not gay. <laughs> <laughs> I like girls. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think, so, so to be honest, I don't think I was confident. I just right. think it was more of a, a, you know, a middle finger up to society. It was a F you, don't, don't tell me how to be. I'll be who I am. But isn't that not confidence? I would say that's confidence. Really? To be able to do that, it, that's majority of mainstream people can't even do that. Mm-mm. You know, I think there is a confidence there that you're saying, I'm going to do it my way rather than having be a sheep and kind of do what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And it's funny because I would never have thought of it as confidence. Yeah. I, okay. I just thought of it as like a, yeah. A rebelliousness, I think. Yeah, right. Mm. So what happened kind of with your first apprenticeship? Did you, how long were you there for? Um, so I, I suppose what comes along with all of that stuff of being, a, a, you know, being rebellious, going against the norm, mm. um, pushing back on, on society, going to 13 different schools before you yeah. start high school is a whole lot of personal stuff, mm. right? And so I... Um, I, I fell into taking a lot of drugs and mm. falling into kind of really rough little crowds and getting into trouble. Um, and just it took me a long time to finish my apprenticeship because I kept getting into trouble and, yeah. you know, choosing the wrong path and just like going off track and getting into trouble. And um, I, I guess it took me almost seven years mm. to get qualified when I yeah. should have, when it should have taken me three years. And what what was the, it was the 80s, it was a glam time of excess and what kind of, I guess, kept you drawn to that lifestyle? I think the one thing that kept me drawn to it, look, honestly, for me personally, there was this, um, 
this never satisfied with mm. the result. Right. Right. Like, and, and I think you can probably relate to this as oh, a creative. Yeah. Oh, like absolutely. The, the creative process is so infuriating. You know, you learn a craft or a method or a process to be able to execute your vision. And then every time you execute, you have an idea, you follow the process, and then you look at the vision and you're like, that looks like shit. Mm. I hate it. And then you try again and you're never, ever satisfied with the yeah. result. And the feedback that you get from the people that you're doing the, the, the work for, the creative for, is often really good. So they just keep paying you and keep saying, you're doing great, you're yeah, doing great. Yeah. So you get this massive duality of like the internal struggle, which is I'm shit, my work's shit, I'm never going to be good enough, I'm going to keep trying. And you're getting the positive feedback from the other side, which is going, you're great, here's money, you're great, here's money. Mm. And, and I think that... that tension keeps you or for me personally keeps me striving to try and um i don't know not achieve perfection but at least be good mm. like do you look at it good. do you look at it as self-sabotage in any way the fact that kind of talking yourself down i know i find that with myself and kind of that imposter syndrome i'm mm. kind of feeling like you shouldn't be here and you're just talking yourself down and i guess with your your life kind of being a little bit of a, in flux all the time do you think that was kind of associated at all with it? Or you yeah. were just a perfectionist and you wanted to kind of do better? I think both. Yeah. You know, definitely both, right? Like 100% I was a perfectionist. Um, but I think I haven't met a creative or a successful creative who doesn't suffer from imposter syndrome. Mm. I was working – I accidentally um, – I accidentally, <laughs> I actually d accidentally became a TV show host, and then accidentally became an actor in <laughs> films. Really? There yeah. you go. <laughs> That's a whole other. You've story. had a life. <laughs> my goodness. That's a whole other story alongside some <laughs> other things. But I was in this really big Hollywood film, and uh, one of my one of my um, one of the other actors in the film, who I would hang out with every day for four months while we were shooting this right. film, was an Academy Award winner. And so he'd literally just won the Academy Award for Best Actor. No and we were sitting out in the sun one day just shooting the shit and the producer um, came over and goes, oh, um, sorry, the, one of the runners came over and said, the producer wants to see you. And immediately my kind of, I was like, oh shit, they're going to fire me. Because mm. <laughs> I didn't know, I, like, I totally didn't deserve to be there at all. Right, right. Um, but they were like, no, Adrian, it's you. Go, go and see the producer. Anyway, when he came back and, and we sat down to finish our coffee, he's like, man, every time I have to go and talk to the producer or the director, I'm convinced that they're going to fire me mm. because I'm ruining the film. And I'm mm. like, wait a minute. You, you're actually the best actor on the planet. Like the Academy just said, you, my friend, are the number one top best yeah. actor on the planet. And you feel like that? I still that? have that. <sighs> and, and, and I think I, I had a sort of a little moment of realisation there, almost a sense of relief, right? Mm, absolutely, like, yeah. Like, oh, my God, if, if this person who is so acclaimed and so successful and so amazing at their craft feels like an imposter, then it then – it stands to reason that I will have that too. Mm. And so that almost helped me kind of not overcome it, but almost compartmentalize it in yeah. a way that's like, okay, we all get it. We've all got imposter syndrome. That's, well, I was kind of, I concluded into that way of like, we're just all human. It's a human emotion. It's like, you're not special in thinking this way. It's, we all have it. It's, we all kind of look down on ourselves and we, and that's the part of being human that we have to kind of overcome and kind of, look beyond that you know yeah I and think. i think importantly 
we do that not just in our work or in our mm. creative pursuits, but I one day noticed myself like the way I talked to myself, I was running the soft sand at Bondi Beach and I was like whipping myself like yeah. verbally in my mind and I was like, oh, my God. If I ever spoke to another person like that, yeah, right. I would have no friends. I would mm. have no relationships. And I was kind of like, why do I speak to myself like that? I need to change my self-talk because mm. that, <laughs> that's not nice. No, and it's, that is a good way to look at it is you wouldn't talk to other people like that. And mm. if you do, then there are issues there, you know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so what kind of made you then overcome that eventually you get your apprenticeship finished and kind of be able to be qualified? Um, so I, uh, when I was 18, I, uh, so as I mentioned, I kind of got into these rough little circles and mm. I would get into trouble and I was a very small, sort of delicate, pretty looking boy who dressed mm. weird. And so I used to get beat up a lot. Yeah. Um, I'd get beat up. I would get, uh, picked on and bullied and, 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 and I was, one day I was like, you know what? F you guys, mm. I'm, I'm going to learn how to fight. And I'm going to come back and show you who's boss. Yeah. And so I took up karate. Right. And within about two months of taking up karate, because I, I grew up without a dad, basically. Mm. Um, my dad, my real dad was an alcoholic and was in jail and yeah. um, was taken away by the police when I was four. And my my mum remarried, my adopted dad, you know, they split up when I was 13. So yeah. that was really tumultuous. So I grew up without a dad. Mm. And as soon as I started doing karate, it was like this father energy that came into my life, this structure and discipline and clarity, like singular clarity, mm. really defined boundaries. And that felt absent growing up. Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't know it was absent. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't know what I didn't know. But once it came into my life, it really just filled a massive void. Mm. And so I embraced it in the extreme, like everything I do. I just embraced it in the extreme and I started training, you know, twice a day, every day, seven days a week and, you know, got my black belt and competed and Amazing. once once I started doing that, that brought a sense of discipline into my life and I remember thinking one day, what if I put that same energy into my career? Mm. I wonder what could happen because I've been told that I'm good and I have success in my career and it's easy for me and I love it. Mm. Like I love the creative and I love the pursuit of the height of creative. Mm. What if I put that energy in? What could happen? I remember the moment. I remember standing on a street corner in a small town in New <laughs> Zealand with orange dreadlock mohawk <laughs> In a wife beater singlet and massive baggy shorts and Doc Martens. I need to tattoos. see photos of you. <laughs> I wish I had photos. Yeah, you, know. you know, this is one of the funny things of growing uh, up the way I did. There's no photos no, of me. Right. Yeah. And uh, and I went. This doesn't. This doesn't fit in this town. No right. <laughs> um. So yeah, that was kind of the impetus. That's how. That's how. That's what made me apply the discipline to my career. And then you moved out, I guess, from I moved, New Zealand. Yeah. I moved. I moved to Auckland City Auckland, for yeah. a start, um, and I went to work in a salon with a, with a whole bunch of award-winning stylists, and just decided that I needed to surround myself with the sort of people that um, I could respect mm. and admire, and that would actually um, that I felt were I don't want to say equal, but were you know uh, um, in, interested in the same realm right. of, of of success and, and drive. And that helps you 
mature a little bit and grow up a little bit more and kind of it does you know and i think there's i had a kid you know oh, yeah. and that made me go that'll do it oh shit <laughs> If I want this kid to achieve their dreams, I better show them how right. to do that, not tell them how to do mm. it. Where you, did you have fears of that kind of not having the father figure in your life? How you'd be able to do that? Did you have any reservations? I um, I think I just um, I, I think I just didn't want to be a hypocrite. Mm. Right. Right. Um, I, of course, I was afraid that I was going to turn into my father. And yeah, be we, we all have those fears if we have be a bad a drunk experience. And, you know, yeah. and be a violent drunk who was absent or violent and drunk, mm. you know. And and I, I really that fear and here's an interesting thing, you know, like we're talking about what drives you and what what, what pushes you to kind of uh, um, pursue in in my mind, pursue my own personal best, mm. right? And um, I think that there's there's you can use those negative things in your life to push you away from those things, right? Like I think a lot of us um, look at their life and their upbringing and just are repelled by it. They mm. want to be away from it. They want to just – I, I want to be anything but what I grew up as and right. with, you know. And I think that can be a motivating force. Oh, um, and so, yeah, the fear of that made me like, shit, can I be this for my daughter – don't be a hypocrite. Show her. Mm. Go out and do whatever you can do. See what happens. Yeah. Be be the story you want them to be. And you ultimately have the control to do that. That's the thing, isn't it? Only you do, right? Yeah, only you do. Only you have the control over your life. Only mm. you have the choice to be or not be who you want to be. Mm. That the, it's very simplistic, but it's not easy. And I think there's a big sure, difference yeah. between simple and easy. Right? Mm. But I believe very powerfully that the simplest thing to do is to change your mind mm. and make a decision. The hardest thing to do is to stick to that decision. Mm. Right? How do you stick to that decision? Do you have a practice? Do you have a way of any reminders that kind of keep you in, on track? Yeah, for sure. Um, first of all, uh, I'm incredibly stubborn. <laughs> um, but I have practiced consciously making a decision and then sticking to it. I, I um, In my 20s, uh, alongside my martial arts practice, I would practice a form of yoga called Kriya. And one of the lessons that I learned early on, which has stuck with me, is that every time you decide to do something – and then you do it, mm. it strengthens your will incrementally. Every time you do something or decide to do something and then don't do it, mm. it weakens your will incrementally. So that somehow stuck in my brain. And every time I decide to do something and don't do it, I get this massive fear that I'm eroding my willpower that right, I've been right. building. And I'm like, no, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. Um, so that's just a, a conscious decision. Like when you're working out, it's like the same thing. If you don't go to the gym for a few days, you feel like you're kind of ruining it all and it's yeah. going to crumble. Yeah. 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 Which is not necessarily true because sometimes you need a rest, but right, actually yeah. it's a good motivator, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a good thing to keep you accountable. Um, I have a coach that keeps me accountable. Um, over the years I've worked with co different coaches in various roles, either, um, you know, like, 
I've either specifically put them in place and pay them mm. for the accountability or they've accidentally been somebody that I'm accountable to. Even if it's just in my mind, I'm accountable to them. Like my karate coach, yeah, yeah. Um, I was like, I gotta, you know, it's like, that's the dad mm. in my mind, you know, yeah. be a good son. Love that. Amazing. So I, what eventually brought you over to Sydney? Oh, um, so I accidentally ended up in Sydney. We were moving to New York. So okay. I um, so I decided I'm, I'm going to see where my career can take me, right? Like I'm going to apply the same energy that I've applied to my martial arts to my career, see where it can take me. And I was traveling a lot. Mm. Um, I'd sort of, I won a bunch of awards and then I got opportunities to um, travel. I, I, I started working with some photographers. And was it mostly kind of uh, freelance or did you have your own salon? Did you... So I worked, I worked in a salon mm. and uh, I decided to pursue my career. I started entering awards. I entered some photographic awards in the 90s after I won a bunch of other hairdressing awards. And the photographer that I worked with, so how I went about it, right? Like mm. I didn't look at hairdressers to see, you know, how they were winning awards. I looked at fashion to find right. the best people in the image making industry that mm. I could partner with to collaborate on a vision. Yeah. yeah. I'm, Smart. I, I learned some really massive lessons, man, because so many hairdressers are just navel gazing so about the hair mm. and they start with the hair and then they kind of try and build a story beyond that. Right. But I'm like, listen, if I'm going to be, if, if an image is the end result, the person that creates an image is a photographer, mm. not a hairdresser. The photographer creates the image. So number one, most important person in the team is the photographer. The image is of a model. So talent is number two, most important person. Mm. Then it's the elements that kind of jazz it up. The right. hair, the makeup, the wardrobe, the, the concept, the styling, the context. But first photographer, second talent, and then the other stuff after that. So I flipped that model in my head. I mm. kind of made that model up in the 90s and it, it became really successful for me in terms of winning awards but I worked with this one photographer and he's like dude I haven't worked with anyone that does hair like you mm. would you be interested in doing some shoots with me yeah nice so I'm like hell yeah mm. uh, <laughs> this is okay so this have you been shooting at all much no, no I've done like been. like three hair shoots yeah, yeah, yeah so basically I hired him right, okay. to do my hair competition shoots right which you know we ended up getting accolades and published around the world and winning awards and whatever um, but he was like, hey, do you want to come and do some editorial shoots with me? I'm like, yes, yeah. <laughs> I do. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, so one day he phones me and he goes, hey, do you want to go to Queenstown? We're, go, we're going to go there. Um, it's winter festival. We've got press passes. So we've got everything. All our expenses are covered. There's no fee, but we're going to shoot three stories and a cover. Um. And I was like, yep. Cover. <laughs> and that's like, whoa, right away I'm doing a cover. <laughs> yeah, my first my first ever job, right? So I'm like, yep, I'm in. And I, like, I'm telling the receptionist, cancel all my clients this week, <laughs> shift my book around, like I'm going. Right? Yeah. Um, and then so as I'm hanging up the phone, right, he goes, he goes, um, oh, you do makeup, right? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Just say, yes. Just say yes. Just say yes. And then I'm like, uh oh, 
I don't know how to do makeup. Mm, what? A whole other scale. <laughs> I have no idea. No, you know, I. What am I going to do? So I go to yeah. the makeup shop. I buy a bunch of makeup. We fly to Queenstown. The whole time <laughs> I'm just like sweating because I have uh. no idea what product goes on and what order. I, I know I know what I want it to look like. Right. Right. And and. I ha- like I have a good idea of how I want it to come out in the end, but how to get there, I have no idea. No, right. So we do that. I do this thing. We do, we shoot these three stories. We it's cool. And you do the makeup. Yeah, I do the makeup and the hair for three stories and the cover. We get the cover, and the cover's a beauty shot, like a really tight beauty oh. shot. <laughs> and uh, so pre, we're talking pre-internet, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, or pre-popular use of the internet. Yeah. And so how we would discover which creatives did what jobs was we would look at the editorial credits in the magazine. Right. Yeah, right? Yeah. And then we go, oh, so-and-so did that makeup. That's cool. The, cu- the magazine came out. People started calling me. Hey, I love what you did for the cover of Pulp. Can I book you for such and such? Can I book you for this and no, that and the other yeah. thing? And I started getting booked to do hair and makeup. And makeup. For the first time <laughs> doing makeup. <laughs> oh, my God. I freaked out. And I, so for six months, I had this makeup kit that I would lug around with my hair kit. And I would just, like, have extreme anxiety uh. of trying to make up these models. And we were doing, like, massive big billboard international campaigns. And I would just make sure that the hair was amazing. Yeah, right. And so they didn't notice the makeup. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Anyway, one day I was like, I can't do this anymore. And um, one of the photographers that, like, it sort of kicked off pretty quickly for me after that. You know, like, I just started getting called. Amazing, yeah. I had these great relationships with three or four photographers who were busy and they just booked me all the time. And so um, I, one day one of them rang me and I was like, hey, um, I am available, but how would it be if we got someone else to do the makeup and and, and I just do the hair? Mm. (laughs) And they were like, oh, my God. I'm so glad you've said that because you do amazing hair, but I just think the makeup's been a little bit. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Just about telling the truth. <laughs> but you know what? You clearly got away with it. And there's something in you that you, you know what to do with a face. Like, you know what works and what doesn't clearly. Well, this is the thing about beauty, right? Like beauty fashion is, it's kind of, it, we're in the same family. It's mm. about, mm, it's about making the person look and feel great, right? Like you, sometimes you put on you put on clothes and you go, oh, my God, there I am, mm. right? And same with hair. You can push hair around and then all of a sudden you find the right angle, the right position, the right parting, the right amount of off the face versus on the face and then all of a sudden you're just like, there she is. There's the girl. That's mm. the that's it and she feels it as well yeah. right and so it's kind of the same with makeup it's just trying to find that moment where ah that's her that's the character that's the girl that's that's who i see on the inside yeah. represented by the outside wonderful so you i from there i guess started continuing to do editorial get into commercial and you traveling what traveling. were some of the highlights of that um well i kind of i i i would i would do both so i'd do editorial and advertising jobs i would be shooting and um, 
because I was still quite strongly connected with the hair industry, some of the brands would get me to speak to hairdressers about my experiences and my journeys and do, you know, so I got to do this kind of really nice crossover where I would get paid quite good money to do speaking engagements to Mm -hmm. hairdressers that would allow me to be in another country and I could do jobs there. And then it was ideal, isn't it? That's quite nice. It was kind of cool. It worked out really well. Um, And I was in, so it just kind of like sort of snowballed and opportunities presented themselves and, I ended up doing this thing where I was um, – so I, I would go to New York and I would work on Fashion Week in New York and that mm. had always been a dream for me. I want to work New York Fashion Week. So I'd go over and I'd work on shows. And then I remember saying – I was doing this thing on uh, Good Morning TV. So Good Morning, uh, the morning TV show, they said to me one day, would you like to come and talk about hair trends, right? We'll mm. do a, like a three-minute segment and if it's good, we'll do it like once a month or once every couple of months and you can just talk about hair trends. Um, so I rocked up, did this one thing and they were like, oh, that was really cool. People liked it. Do you want to come back next week and do another one? Mm. And so I was like, oh, okay, yep, I'll do that. So I went back and did another one and then they were like, that was awesome. Do you want to come back next week and do a seven-minute <laughs> spot? <laughs> And it turned into a weekly seven-minute spot, really? which rated really well. And so then I said to them, hey, you guys, um, what if we did – and this is obviously pre-social media mm. – what if we did live from the runways of the world translating the trends for everyday women? And they Amazing. were like, yes, yeah. let's do it. So that funded my trips to New York Fashion Week yeah. where I would work on the shows, photograph backstage – run out front of house, shoot some of the models, run back to my hotel, do a quick edit, email them over to uh, TVNZ and then they would call me on the phone and we would do a live cross. (laughs) (laughs) And Those were the heydays of television work and magazine work and all that stuff, isn't it? It was so great. And and doing that kind of got me to meet people and and I Mm. got to interview some interesting people. I didn't know how to interview anyone, but, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm here for TVNZ. What are you up to? (laughs) Stick a microphone in the mouth. Um, And, um, you know, I got to meet some interesting people and, and other opportunities came out of that. So one day I was over there and a friend said, hey, do you want to go down and have a play on this show? Um... And so I'm like, yeah, sure, doing my thing uh, with my camera and Mm. rocked up down there, did some hair. It was the uh, Diesel Black Gold Gold Show. Mm. Uh, And Guido Palau was the hair director. And Guido's like this legend in the hair business in fashion. He does everything. He does like everything, right? Like more or less every Italian Vogue cover you see, Guido's done the hair. and uh, I didn't know, so I just rock up down there and I'm doing some hair and somebody, you know, I finish a girl and I take her over to Guido and I'm like, how, how does she look? And he kind of looks her up and down and he's like, hmm, <laughs> I want you to go around and make sure every single girl looks exactly like this. Really? Like, okay. <laughs> no clue. Not knowing, yeah. Completely naive, guy from New Zealand. Like, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm rocking up to people who've been working in Guido's team for 15 years, you know, uh, uh, do 30, 40, 50, 60 shows a year. And I'm going, oh, just do this like this and just this little bit over Mm. here, you know. And they're like, who is this dick? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we finish the show. Mm. I do my thing. I take the photos of the girls backstage. I run out in front of the house, take some photos. I'm standing there kind of cleaning my brush. 
and this guy's standing next to me goes, are you here with the hair team? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, how, how did you get here? I was like, oh, my mate Lou said to come down because her <laughs> friend Sandy was like, you know, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so I come and have a play. And he goes, hmm, interesting. Because I booked the hair team and I didn't book you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, how does that work? Do you, what, are you, you because I work for art and commerce and I book the hair. I'm like, oh, cool. So do you, what, do you rep everyone here or how does that work? And he goes, no. And then he just cold <laughs> shoulders me like this, right? I'm like, and then I, I started trying to talk to him and he just blanked me. So I'm like, mm, okay, whatever. Mm. I, got, I obviously put his nose out of joint because I just sort of turned up and it was his team in yeah, theory. Right. Um, so I left, no, like just thinking nothing of it and this guy comes running down the street after me. It's winter in New York. It's kind of rainy. Mm. And he's like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Um, uh, what are you doing for the rest of the week? Because Guido was hoping to have you on his team. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I'll see. what. Send me, send me the list of, of shows and I'll see what I can do. Because I've <laughs> got some commitments. <laughs> That's classic. And I wasn't trying to be a dick, no, you know. It's no. just, it was true. I was true. I was yeah. there for, for, for TVNZ. So, um, uh, anyway, I ended up doing a whole bunch of shows with them and then I did like eight shows that week. At the end of the week, the last show was Calvin Klein and wow. I'd got into it like we did Ralph Lauren, Alexander Wang, Mark Jacobs, Mark by Mark. And then we're at... Uh, what year was this? Uh, Ninety... No, two, 2008, 2009 maybe. Yeah, right, okay, wow. So, yeah. So... Uh, we were doing – and I kind of – you know, I'd got to know a few of the people by then because we'd been working together all week. Yeah. And they're like, oh, you're coming to Milan? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and and every second person was like, oh, you're coming to Milan? I'm like, no. No. And then uh, – Who's paying for it? <laughs> yeah. Then Pat, Pat McGrath gives me a hug and she's like, you know, th- thank you. It's ni- been nice meeting you. Will I see you in Milan? I'm like, No. <laughs> And then Guido gives me a hug and he's like, thank you so much for this week. It's been really nice working with you. I'll see you in Milan, yeah? And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Sure. <laughs> Had you known who he was then? I knew who he was, yeah, yeah. right? Like I knew who he was, but I didn't know how the system worked. Mm. And I, I, I kind of I, – I didn't have an idea that there was this kind of – this bigger tier right. of organisation where, right, yeah, yeah. you know, all those people in that team – were all getting paid they were all chosen to be there they were the best of the best um and i didn't realize that the guy who was like i didn't pick i didn't book you you know he gets like hundreds of emails from hairdressers wanting to be in that team yeah right like hundreds of emails a month i want to be in the team i want to be in the team here's my cv like dms and and like whatever you know i didn't know that i was Mm. just like whatever you know Hey, we're doing some here. Well, it's also a very much a, a Australia, New Zealand attitude of like everyone does everything, mm. you know. And yeah. It's like we're in America. It's like there's a role specifically for everyone, and it's very yeah. could clash sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and do like follow the hierarchy, follow yeah. the rules, and don't break them. Right? Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I ended up, I think, I think did two over two hundred shows with that team wow. over the years, which was really really fun. Um, but I was going to move to New York because mm. I was working. Most of my money work was coming either out of the States or out of Asia. Um, and so we were going to move to New York. My wife had always wanted to move there. Um, I got an agent there. 
you know, looking at schools, looking at real estate. Mm. And I was here in Sydney working on a shoot and it was this beautiful, like a May, beautiful May day with crisp blue sky and the light was coming through the leaves and we shot this amazing story with two beautiful models and amazing fashion and it was as good or better than the work I was doing in New York. Right. And I went, wait a minute. I never even thought of Sydney. I would work here a lot. I would come here and do shows and shoots, but I never thought of living here. So you weren't living here at the time? No, no. I was living in Auckland. Right. And I was like, what if we moved here instead of mm. New York? And so I rang Cindy and I was like, uh, I was on my way back to the airport to go home. I was like, hey, should we have a conversation about <laughs> potentially moving to Sydney instead of New York? And she's like, hmm, okay. Six weeks later, we lived here. Really? Like, it happened like that. And what, what, what do you think it was about Sydney that other than, you know, the, the beauty of that, that, do you, I mean, a lot of people in the industry, especially feel like you have to go overseas, you have to go somewhere international like mm. that and staying kind of close is not the way to go, but clearly mm. it's worked for you. Yeah. Well, I guess everyone thinks New York or London, yeah. right? New York, London, or, you know, somewhere else in Europe. But for me, Sydney, the, well, what a. What a great what a what a city! Mm, I agree. <laughs> Far out, man. It's the weather is amazing. Yeah. Uh, work is great here. Yeah. Uh, I make the same money that I would make in the US. Mm. Yes, there's a bit of a ceiling, right? But because there's no ceiling, doesn't necessarily you're going to reach those heights. Doesn't mm. necessarily mean you're going to reach those heights in the US anyway. No, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, but lifestyle here, school. Um, the beach, mm. fashion's good here, people are good, food's good. Uh, no visa for me as a Kiwi, just yeah, lock yeah, on up. Exactly. <laughs> just like <laughs> check the box on the arrival form. Yep, moving permanently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's close to New Zealand. Yeah. Like th I think there's a lot of reasons why Sydney's great. But for me, from a career point of view, best thing I ever did. Mm. That's good to hear. Mm. I think there's – it's – I, I always say this kind of when I have discussions about the whole New York or America and Sydney thing or Australia. And it's like, I feel that there's so much opportunity here that, and there's so many stories that haven't been told here mm. in Australia where you could go to New York and you could be another person that kind of does the same thing over and over and you get lost. Mm. Why not do it in the city that you can shine a little bit more and kind of make an impact, you know? And yeah, I like that. I like that idea that you can make an impact, especially as I get older, you know, like I feel like one of the things that I am leaning into a little bit more as I get older is the fact that I, I do have some kind of influence on other hairdressers particularly. Mm. And here I can have that, I can have that impact. I can continue to do really interesting work with amazing people. Man, like we shoot with the best girls in the world. Mm. We have some of the best photographers in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes to that, for sure. You know, yes, maybe you can't just call the PR and get the latest piece from Prada shipped down. Mm. But, you know, there's one somewhere. And <laughs> if you wait <laughs> your turn, right. it'll turn up. <laughs> That's very true. Um, and, you know, I still get messaged uh, from different people in all, all over the world, like, hey, can you, you know, come and do this shoot? Can you come and do that shoot? Yeah. Exactly, and the travel opportunity, you know, pre-COVID pre and hopefully post-COVID, is going to always be there, really. Yeah. So, Do you know what's nice, though, um, is um, post-COVID not traveling and living in Sydney. Mm. Oh, my God. I couldn't imagine 
being in New York. Oh my goodness! The last twelve months. Anywhere that's very concentrated like that, I feel like there was breathing room here, and it's like there's room to just and mm-hmm. enjoy what you have around you. Yeah. I definitely. We moved out at a. We were in Potts Point on Chalice Avenue, and we had a small apartment there with no outlook. We're like, we need to kind of take advantage of this opportunity, find somewhere with a. So we're now in Mulumalu, and we have this beautiful kind of blue sky and city view, and it's like ah, that is just what you need sometimes. Yeah. Is just I can't imagine being. And, and you, you kind of like you live in a city like New York. You can't buy that no. for love nor money. You no, know? and you—that's another thing with New York. You need the money to be able to even live on the fringe mm. of it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Just to <laughs> kind of live comfortably. Yeah. Um, but so what, to, yeah. So what's your average day here in Sydney look like? <laughs> I'm sure it's all over the place. Man, it's all <laughs> over the place. Okay, so so last week was Fashion Week. Right? Yeah. So. Uh, an average day would be so. I have a. I have a. I. I, I said earlier that um, I've accidentally become the CEO of a tech company. Yes. So I have a every day at nine thirty. I have a stand up with my team. So we check in what I did yesterday, what I'm doing today. It's an accountability piece that we do every day as mm. a team. Uh, it's a little five minute thing. Prior to that, I'm usually uh, doing a bunch of emails. Um, some writing, some planning, some prep, and like getting the day set up. Mm-hmm. Then uh, fashion week last week, um, it's turn up at turn up for the show, uh, brief in my team. How many shows did you have? I, I was really lucky. I only did one show. Oh, nice. I did Romance <laughs> Was Born. Uh, and the big one. <laughs> yeah. And it was, oh. I can't imagine being behind the scenes. That, to me, was one of the most amazing shows I've seen internationally. Yeah. Like it was, I was in awe. <laughs> I was like, and especially the fact that this could be done here mm. was even more so like, wow. Like the production and even the clothing mm. and everything about it was yeah. just beautiful. So congrats Look, on that. I mean, that show, if that was in New York or Paris, mm. if it was if it was McQueen or Mark or, uh, or, 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 uh, or, or Saint Laurent or any of those, you know, mm-hmm. if it was any of the blue chip brands, you yeah. would go amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it was here and it was romance and it was Australian and it was. And there was still creativity to the galore behind it. It wasn't like just mass production. It was just hands-on, Australian mm. hands-on, which is yeah. amazing. Well, one of the things I love about working with those guys is that the creative process, I liken it to standing around and throwing firecrackers into a rubbish bin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. whoa, that was cool. <laughs> Throw another one. <laughs> that was cool. You know, and the, the creative process is like, yeah, more, more, do, do more. Um, so I really enjoy that with them because they're, they are, they're true creatives, they're visionary, but at the same time, they're very accomplished and Mm. they, they understand and are comfortable with the process of creativity, Mm. you know? And I think sometimes, um, working with other creatives, one of the challenges is that not everybody's as comfortable with the creative process. They right. want like they want things to be clear and tight and defined and, you know, here's what I want. Do this this way. Whereas I think with romance it's really let's get together as a team. Mm. Here's like the framework of the collection, the clothes, um, the the uh, here's the ideas behind what we want to say with the show, what we want to say with the clothes. 
um, with the, the talent that we put the clothes mm. in. Here's the stories we want to tell. How do we now take all of that and find a way to bring the beauty looks in as an anchor? Yeah. Um, and the, I don't know if you remember the makeup, but um, Pinky did the makeup and it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It, it all worked so seamlessly together. Yeah. The clothes, the hair, the makeup, everything was just... So because the makeup, know. like the clothes were everything, the makeup was everything, the, the, the set was like mm. just, it was all everything, we decided that the best thing to do was to kind of, and, and one of the threads was we want to feel like romance is born, uh, romance was born, has grown up a little bit. And you felt that. You absolutely felt that. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, but still, how can you, you kept your core. You kept to like, mm. I mean, it kind of brings you back to what, you were like when you were younger of kind of having that little punk edge, but yep. you still grow up and you have that still, you know, yep. and yep. it's, you have that through your tattoos. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's a permanent thing that's always going to stay if you're being true to yourself. Yeah. You know? it's, and, and I love that you say that because it's about being true to yourself. Mm. Right. And, um, and for me as a part of that creative team, I look at my, my department and I go, how do I help everybody else shine? Mm. Like, how do I do the right thing here? That means everybody can shine and the story can be told. And it was about, you know, just bringing that hair back to a kind of a raw, tough, like, I think, you know, a natural tendency with, with creative like that, with Romance Was Born, where there's makeup and there's hair and there's set designers, uh, you know, and there's clothes, is to go, let's do a big hair thing as well, mm. you know, like, let's do coloured wigs and crazy shapes. Yeah. And, you know, like, I think that's a natural tendency, whereas I'm like, Let's do the opposite. Right. And that's, I think, where my rebelliousness, like my, my true nature is mm. in kind of, fuck you, I'm going to do the opposite of what yeah. everybody <laughs> thinks I should do. Of course. <laughs> but it works uh, for my creative process. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so, so that was amazing. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges as a, as a hair director is that you have three roles. One of your roles is to design a look that carries the show and, and and makes the talent feel as if they just belong mm. right? and and it's like i was talking before about sometimes you push the hair around you go oh, there you are it's a, it's finding that moment for 41 talent mm. um, 41 yeah it was huge wasn't it yeah Goodness. so it's designing the look right that's the creative and then on the day you've got to run a team and i had 22 people in my team some of them have worked with me before. Most of them hadn't. So I have to set the team up, set them up with the way I work, mm. set them up with the look, the techniques, the methods, the processes, supervise that to ensure that those 20 hairdressers execute a vision for the runway on time and on brief at the level that meets my expectations. Mm. So it feels as if... I've done every person that's walking. Yeah, which is hard to do. <laughs> Very so that's, hard to that's do. job two. And then while you're doing those two jobs, um, you also have to be a media spokesperson for the brand and sponsors. Yes, right. right. So, you know, people are coming backstage and they want to interview you. And so you have to be able to articulate the look and the whys and the what fors and make sure you spruik out the brands that are sponsoring you and, and, and create the opportunities for the brand to get that little bit of extra media reach mm. through the beauty media. Absolutely. How. With all this kind of, you know, experience that you've had, how did you end up, you mentioned you started a startup. 
how did you end up falling into that and applying all these skills to something completely new? Mm. It's a good question, actually. It's um, so. When I was what is the startup? Explain the startup. So we, we have a, a software company mm. for the hair business that helps hairdressers uh, basically do the business of hairdressing, uh, not the craft, so not the hair, but sell the products, do the recommendations, do the consultation, keep records um, in a really magical way. We call mm. it a multidimensional experience. Mm. Um so 95% of hairdressers feel like they do a proper consultation for every client. 7% of people feel like they've ever had a consultation at the salon once. Really? Yeah? Interesting <laughs> stuff. Um, uh, across the entire industry in Australia and New Zealand, only 12% of people that visit the salon actually buy their at-home hair care from the salon. But um, of the of the 88 people, 88% of people that don't, 85% of them would purchase something if it were recommended. It's just not being recommended to them. Right. And hairdressers don't sell because they're creatives and they hate selling. Mm. So we've created a really magical system that allows them to recommend product, recommend treatments, rebook their clients without ever having to sell. It's this kind of magic system. Mm. Um, and so how that came about is that I was invited to a think tank and the guy that had set it up was having this problem. He would go to the hairdresser he went to a great salon, a great award-winning stylist. He paid $90 for his haircut, like a basic man's haircut, every four weeks. And every visit, the guy would say to him, what do you use in your hair? And he would say, Kevin Murphy, Knight Rider. And the guy would go, great. And that was okay. the end of the conversation. <laughs> and then this guy, who's now one of the founders of the, the business I'm in, would have to go somewhere else and pay the 50 or 60 bucks for the product that he liked. And he was like, hang on, one, I have to go somewhere else. So mm. there's two jobs for me when it comes to my hair. Uh, and two, I'd rather give my money to the guy that's cutting my hair because I like him and I yeah, feel right. like I'd rather... You have a relationship there. Yeah, and then he was like, I wonder if there's an issue here and I wonder if there's a way that we can uh, find a tech, tech solution to help hairdressers keep the revenue in the chair. Um, and so I was invited to that think tank and a lot of the ideas that were coming up were kind of like, you know, I'm like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. Okay. And yeah. then I had this moment, like a, an epiphany moment. It was literally like, so w when I was, um, when I was a kid, I was telling you about that haircut that I had with the wedge cut <laughs> and the girl was explaining the, the, uh, biochemical process of how the color worked and then the architectural approach to how you could create a geometric form on uh, an organic head shape. Right. And I had an epiphany in that moment. Like I, it was like someone hit me between the eyes with a hammer and I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was going to do hair in that moment. Mm. Likewise, at this uh, think tank, when I had this light bulb moment, it was the second time in my entire life really? where I knew without a shadow of a doubt that this was this was the solution. Um, so I basically, I made a, a, a PowerPoint presentation version of it on an iPad that I just mocked up myself mm. and I went out to about 200 people and showed them. Now, I didn't ask them, I didn't preface it with anything. I just said, tell me what you hate, tell me right. what you love. Mm. And the coldest response we had was, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Shouldn't everyone be doing that? And the idea is that we take care of... Um, 
answer, asking and answering the nine most important questions that create a design brief for the hairdresser. So lifestyle, hair history, hair habits, personal style and aesthetics, mm. including mood boards. So the client will build those themselves in an app before they visit the salon. Then when they visit the salon, they scan the smart mirror. So we, we I, I also, I don't ask me how I did this. I don't know how, <laughs> but I built a patented smart mirror. Like I actually built it myself. Amazing to kind of see <laughs> that something like that exists. Yeah. And like I literally built it in my lounge room. Unreal. And, and so we now have this patented uh, device. So you scan the mirror and the mood boards and the answers to your, your brand brief literally just floats on the mirror in front of you. But the magic happens when – so hairdressers do this thing that nobody even knows, right? They do an eight-point hair analysis. As soon as you sit down in the chair and they start touching your hair while they're talking to you, right, they're moving your hair around and looking at your face and your face shape and stuff and talking to you and trying to figure out what you like and what you don't like. But their hands are transmitting – an analysis into their brains, mm. which never gets spoken about because there's no framework to, to talk to you about the physical structure of your hair. So the, the, the biological nature of your hair, the, the different layers, the, the cuticle, uh, the cuticle, the cortex, the medulla, how that impacts what you should be using at home, what services you can and can't have in the salon, what cutting techniques will and won't work, what colouring techniques and products will and won't work. Like just by touching your hair, mm. every hairdresser can tell all of that stuff yeah. in an instant, but they never say it. It stays in their head. <laughs> right. So we've built this like little magical interface where they can just show you what their hands have felt and you have a visual representation of your hair analysis. Then our algorithm processes that information recommends an insulin treatment, which is displayed on the mirror, recommends an at-home hair care regimen, shampoo, conditioner and treatment, which magically comes into your phone, into your app, right. which you can just click to buy and the hairdresser gets the proceeds. Without selling Without directly Without ever like having that. to sell. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Very smart. <laughs> and it sounds an obvious thing, but it clearly wasn't there. So it's like, there's the opportunity, grab it, go it, for it. It sounds super obvious, right? So then the, what's interesting though, for me is as a creative is, I think there's a whole lot of transferable skills that I've learned. Right? Mm. Right? So we just talked about fashion week and having a team of creatives that I have to lead to a successful creative outcome. Um, one of the contracts that I had for 10 years with a company was as a creative director for a big salon group. They had 600 staff and um, I was contracted to be a brand ambassador, design their education program and do all of their, their, their imagery and branding. Mm. And, you know, all the learnings I got from that and, and trying to lead uh, creative teams, small, medium and large creative teams to successful outcomes of a short, medium and long-term projects. So that salon group ended up going from a brand that was ostensibly in, well, I don't want to say in the toilet, but the, the consumer research on that brand when I started was terrible. Right. Like I would, the consumer said I would never go there, basically. Mm. Um, in five years, I made them New Zealand's most awarded salon group. Really? And nice. so that was kind of one of my missions, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, and so a lot of the skills and processes that I learned from that are transferable to the tech company because I've got a bunch of ostensibly creatives because developers are creatives. And we've got this mission 
which is to Amazon proof the salon industry. Right. Right. Smart way to look at it. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Um, My goodness. And that's our mission, right? We just want to Amazon proof the salon industry. We want to help small businesses thrive and survive. And, um, and, And so what I do is I go, here's our mission. The, the product is the vehicle to execute that mission. So it's just leading a team to execute that vision. Love that. Very clever. I think it's you, you, clearly you're, the way your mind works is you also have that business element to it, which a lot of creatives sometimes don't have. Mm. And it's like you have the creativity and you don't know how to kind of monetize it where you've learned kind of over the years and in various forms of how to, mm. how to make a proper living out of it. Yeah, I think that that's partly coming from the antipodes, right? Like, like we we talked about how here you have to do everything, mm. right? And you kind of have to be everything. And when I started out, I didn't have an agent, I didn't have a booker, I had to look after everything myself, do yeah. all my own invoicing. Um, so accidentally, you learn these things. But yeah. like, man, it just it's it's a big it's a big blind spot in the salon industry, you know? Because like like you say, most creatives are concerned primarily with the craft Mm. and the output you know like um you know if you've got a design project the output is the end of it if you're if you're doing a shoot the final images are what you are focused on if you're doing a haircut and color what's immediately in front of you is the client and what's important is the outcome Mm -hmm. so the big blind spot is all this other stuff that's clients who are not coming back Clients who are not buying their product, right. clients who are dissatisfied. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me yesterday she went out for dinner with eight girls. Three of them want to break up with their hairdresser, but don't know how. <laughs> Three out of eight. It's a book title. <laughs> <laughs> how to break up with your hairdresser? I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's definitely finding a solution for creatives. I think, and if a lot of people could think that way as well, of just kind of how to ease that part that you don't want to kind of do and kind mm. of yeah make it as seamless as possible really well i think the secret for me is is understanding what the hairdresser's secret hidden superpower is mm. and what then what when i when i had a vision for this product the idea was people don't speak hair and hairdressers don't speak people mm. let's create a visual interface that allows that bridge to to cross and in fact i think the first working title of the project was Mind Meld. Mm. What, what is the title of it? It's called Peak, P-I-I-Q. So go. Peak, uh, ha- take a peek, so look into it. Um, peak, your interest, P-I-Q-U-E. Climb to the peak. Yeah. yeah. I think it's one of those things as well that it's, it's not a, um, a digital product that is stopping human interaction. It's melding the two together, yeah. which is very refreshing. And yeah. The way forward, isn't it? I think what you know, it's interesting that you that you observe that because that is my my vision. And what the product does is it actually helps people connect mm. better. And one of, one of the things I say is that for creatives, it gives you the freedom to do what you do best, which is connecting and creating. Mm. Um, we I was speaking at this event. Um, a couple of years ago and there was a guy who was talking about technology increasing the gap between human connectivity, right? Mm. And that was one of the things that he was concerned about. He'd written books on it. Um, And I said, come and have a look at this thing. 
And he's like, whoa, that does the opposite. Yeah, <laughs> which is rare yeah. <laughs> right now, at least. Yeah, yeah, for Thank sure. Well, Richard, one last question. What is it like to be you right now? Where's your <laughs> mindset at? What is it like to be me right now? That's a great question. Uh, it could be good, bad, that. it could be stressed, it could be whatever you like. Um, do you know what it's like to be me right now? I feel more comfortable in myself today than I ever have. Mm. Um, I kind of, I've got this weird blend of, um, I don't give a fuck Mm. what people think, whether I don't give a fuck whether I'm successful or not successful. I'm old enough now to know that I'm going to survive and I'm young enough to enjoy life in the moment. Beautifully said right there. I think we could all take that and run with it. <laughs> thank you so much, Richard. Appreciate it. Man, thank you. It's been really nice chatting to you. I know. It's a great conversation and I love it to kind of go in any direction it needs to go in. And mm. it's, it's fun. I think people are going to get a lot out of it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks cool. for having me. Thanks for listening to Men in This Town, the podcast. Produced by Mitwork and recorded at Pocket Studio in Sydney. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate and leave a review wherever you're listening. And as always, thanks for your support.